Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles up to the book of Romans as we get back to my sermon series written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. I've entitled this series, The Unbroken Chain of Salvation, with a little help from my friends. This refers to the main theme of this letter, and in fact, the main theme of the whole of Scripture, that God Himself has provided a way of salvation and eternal life for sinners who deserve only His holy wrath. Don't ever say, I only want what I've got coming to me. I only want what I deserve. No, you do not. And that way of eternal life is provided by God through faith, repentance, trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord. So today, we're going to finish the fourth section of Paul's letter, which according to our outline that I handed out a few weeks ago, is entitled, The Problem of Sin and Judgment. A very encouraging topic for us to be looking at this morning. The Problem of Sin and Judgment. Before we get started, I would ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of a portion of our text. I'll be reading from Romans 3 verses 9 through 18. This is the Word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. This portion of scripture that we just read will bring this section of this letter to a close and set up the next section of the letter where the gospel God's provision for our salvation will be thoroughly explained. Now, we will get back to these verses in a few minutes. But first, I want us to look back at what leads up to these very powerful, very condemning verses. If you remember, Paul opened this letter with a focus upon Christ Jesus and upon the gospel of Christ. Turn back to Romans 1.1, if you have your Bibles open still. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Look at 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, 
asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And then verses 15 through 17. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or non-Jew. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. According to Paul, who needs the gospel? Or who needs salvation and the perfect righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ? All do. Every man, woman, boy, and girl. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory, the perfection of God. And thereby all are deserving of God's holy wrath. Look at verse 18. 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, as we've already learned, that is not the view of most people in this world. Most people think more highly of themselves than they ought to. Most people would say that they are a, quote, good person. And when they die, they will, of course, go to heaven. Why, then, would they need the gospel? Why would they need a Savior if they can trust in their own good deeds, in their religious acts or affiliations, or in their own self-righteousness? Well, as we have seen, Paul realizes the need to establish the fact that every human being is guilty before God and thereby deserving of God's holy wrath. No one will turn to Jesus for salvation without their eyes being opened to their need for salvation. Just like you wouldn't go to a doctor and undergo some radical surgery if you didn't think there was anything wrong with you. No one would do that. So no one will turn to Jesus for salvation unless their eyes are open to their need for salvation. And that is exactly what Paul does from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. He presents God's indictment against mankind. So I'm going to take just a few minutes to review what we've already learned. What Paul has had to say is God's view of humanity outside of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 1.24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Paul tells us that God gives them over to their sinful lusts, their sinful tendencies. But we know many would read that list and say, oh, that's not me. I'm a good person. I'm a morally upright person. Well, Paul addresses you too. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And not one of us have obeyed all of God's law at all times. I didn't hear an amen. But what about the Jews? What about God's chosen people? Surely they must be exempt from this. Look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhorred idols, do you rob temples? Do you boast in the law? Do you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. Now the Apostle Paul is a Jew, right? He grew up thinking very highly of himself. Even when he was arresting and killing Christians, he thought he was doing God's will. So this teaching that the Jews are also sinners in need of the gospel, in need of a Savior, in need of the righteousness that comes from Christ, this is exactly the opposite of what the Jewish people had been taught for centuries. And I want you to understand this. They had been taught that every Jewish person would go to heaven when they died. 
because they were Jews. They were taught that they were already the children of God, and so all Jews would go to heaven and escape any judgment for their sins. They believed that, and they taught that. And they taught that circumcision was the sign of their salvation. You're circumcised, you're saved. Rabbi Menachem, in his commentary on the books of Moses, wrote this. No circumcised man will ever see hell. Another rabbi wrote, circumcision saves from hell. The Midrash, Tillam, wrote, quote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Close quote. Now, did God say that to Abraham? No. But that's how far off course Jewish teaching had become in those 400 silent years between the Old and the New Testament. So Paul addresses this fallacy in verses 25 through 29. Let me read that to you. He says this, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. For no one is a Jew, listen to this, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, done by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It is the heart of man that must be changed through faith in Christ in order to escape the judgment of God that is due for our sins. For none of us have kept the law perfectly. Now, lest you think that this teaching here has no bearing on us, because we're not Jewish, think again. We are actually prone to doing the same thing, thinking that our religious practices or affiliations can make us right with God. Instead of circumcision, we would talk of reciting the sinner's prayer, attending a church, being baptized, becoming a church member. These things may all be good things, but none of them can save us. To drive this point home, Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse restates Romans 2, 28 and 29 in this way. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is church membership outward and physical. But a Christian is one inwardly, and church membership is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. It kind of drives it home, doesn't it? So many in our world today are in that very situation. They think that they were born Christians. 
or that reading the Bible makes them Christians, or attending a church, or being baptized makes them a Christian and gives them a pass to heaven. But the Word of God makes it very clear that unless they repent and trust in Christ for their salvation, there will be no change of their heart by God. That is what actually saves them. Not that which is external, but a heart that is made new by the power of the Spirit of God. Well, that brings us to Romans chapter 3, where we we will see Paul address the objections of the Jews. The objections of this indictment of God against all human beings. And we will see our only hope of justification before God. So let's start with answering objections to God's judgment. Paul had just stripped away any confidence the Jews could have in their Jewishness making them right with God. Paul was very experienced in this debate and he now shares with us the answers to the Jews' objections to this teaching. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul's answer? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says, listen, are you blessed to have the word of God? And the answer is, yes, Absolutely. Scripture is a gift from God because it reveals who God is, who we are, what is required of us, and how it is that we can be saved. This is of great advantage to us as well. Yet to benefit from it, we must hear it, believe it, and live according to it. Many read the Bible as any other book, sporadically, carelessly not looking for application in their own lives. We must instead read it carefully, prayerfully, searching with our minds and heart to learn and apply what it says. But complacent reading is common. So this leads us to the next question. In verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. The problem of Israel's continued unbelief is mentioned five times by Paul in this letter. But Israel's failures do not impugn God's covenants. No. Human failures actually showcase God's excellence, God's mercy, God's grace. Paul's answer? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. By no means is an emphatic negation that Paul uses often in his writings. It means absolutely not or impossible. In this context, let God be true refers to his Promise-keeping. 
He is a covenant-keeping God, and He is always correct in His judgments. This would be true even if we had to call every human being a liar. So God is justified in all of His judgments. He is always righteous in His judgments. Well, the next objection is even more absurd, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. To paraphrase, if my unrighteousness makes God's justice shine, then how can he be displeased with me? My sins make God look good, so he should not punish me. What's Paul's answer in verse 6? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? We know that God does judge all mankind. So this is a ridiculous argument that would prevent him from doing so. It's an entirely absurd argument. Finally, the last objection in verse 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Paul obviously considers this to be an even more absurd question, and he dismisses it without even a response, simply saying this, their condemnation is just. Their condemnation by God is just. If they think that. Yet today there are some who hold to this same thinking. It's called consequentialism or utilitarianism. It asserts that the moral value of an act is determined by its results or consequences. Therefore, The ends justify the means. People would say that a white lie is fine if it makes someone feel good. That's not a lie. That's not a sin. It's just a white lie. Deceptive marketing is acceptable if it keeps a business afloat. Deceitful political attacks are okay if the right candidate gets elected. Not like we're seeing any of that right now, right? We tacitly approve of someone's sinful choices or lifestyle lest we offend them. God's moral absolutes and commandments are missing in this framework. They would say, the ends justify the means. And in Paul's view, they deserve the just condemnation of God for their presumptuous sins. And now we move into the really serious part of this section, where Paul brings an indictment of moral depravity from God 
against all humanity. So after anticipating and answering the objections of the Jews, or any other outwardly religious people who are not truly converted, Paul then closes this section of his letter by declaring God's indictment of human depravity. I say God's indictment because Paul does so by quoting from God's own word over and over again as he indicts the character, conversation, and conduct of all of humanity. Nine times he uses the words such as all and none to show the universality of human sin and rebellion. He starts with the overall charge of universal sinful depravity in verse 9, and then continues with three categories of sinful behavior. Look back with me at verse 9. Paul indicts the entire human race here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or non-Jews, are under sin. The force of the language that Paul uses here leaves no doubt about what is meant. Notice the word used is sin, singular, not sins. And the word under means under the power of or dominion of. Every person in the world is under the power or dominion of sin. What we have here in this statement and in the following verses is without a doubt the most explicit description of more, the moral depravity of all of mankind found in God's Word. The term for this is radical depravity. Now this doctrine doesn't hold that everyone is corrupt in every way, nor does it deny that unbelievers can act lawfully. It means that the whole of human nature is fallen. That sin corrupts every faculty, every part of our being, and that even our best deeds are tainted by imperfect motives. That wickedness is pervasive and only restrained by external factors, such as social disapproval, fear of punishment or consequences, conscience, and the influence of others. We see the full extent of human depravity when these restraints fall off. Paul charges that all humanity, no matter how good some may appear, have this radical corruption of sin in their very core. Paul then supports his indictment by stringing together a series of Old Testament texts to show what God has already said on this topic. Remember, these are the words of God. This method is referred to as a charaz, which literally means stringing pearls together. He quotes eight passages from four books of the Old Testament with devastating artistry. First, he describes mankind's depraved character, then his depraved conduct, and then finally the cause of 
depravity. Let's start with man's depraved character. Look at verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. In case you don't know what none means, he's going to clarify it. Not one. And that's due to original sin. Because of original sin, each and every one is born with a sin nature. We are born sinners. And in God's eyes, all are born unrighteous. Now, we tend to use relative terms for righteousness in respect to our own standards. But here, the standard is the absolute righteousness of God. Make no mistake, that's the standard. The absolute righteousness of God. Only Jesus, the Son of God, was born without a sin nature, and only Jesus kept all of God's commandments perfectly and never sinned. Thus, earning for us the perfect righteousness that we so desperately need. Paul goes on in verse 11. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Is Paul right? Yes, of course. Without divine revelation, no one understands who God is, nor our sinfulness and our need for God's grace. Therefore, no one left on their own seeks after the true and living God. In fact, many deny the very existence of God. And others speak of a God of their own imagination, worshiping idols or imaginary gods. No one left on their own seeks for the true and living God unless God opens their blinded eyes and draws them to himself. Man will only seek after God if God causes them to. He goes on in verse 12, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now again, we look at people and we say, Oh, yeah, she's a really good person. Good by what standard? Your standard or God's standard? Paul says, all have turned aside to their own desires, the lusts that they have. All have turned aside from the true God to worship false gods of their own imagination. Therefore, in God's eyes, none of them can do what is good, that which glorifies God, because they don't even know Him or acknowledge Him. Not even one. Well, thus far... Paul's charaz, his indictment, is devastating. Now, Paul turns to mankind's depraved conduct, first in regards to their speech, and then in regards to their actions. Look at verses 13 through 17. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swept to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. 
When Paul quotes Psalm 5 here, he highlights both the inner corruption and the deadly effects of hateful speech. While evil speech is very common, acts of violence are also becoming more and more common. We know of very little peace in this world because left to themselves, the way of peace man does not know. That is because the only true peace is found in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. And then in verse 18, Paul sums up the cause of mankind's moral depravity. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here is the root cause of man's sinful depravity. It is his built-in godlessness. They do not acknowledge God. They suppress the truth about God. They do not fear God because they refuse to believe in Him as He has revealed Himself to them. They believe that they are in control and therefore have no need to fear a God who is not God according to their own sinful reasoning. This is at the heart of all sin. I will do whatever I want to do and no one can stop me. And if we're going to be honest, folks, that was each and every one of us at one time in our lives. We did not know God. We did not acknowledge God. We had no desire to honor a God that we didn't know or acknowledge. We were a God unto ourselves. So Paul has proclaimed God's indictment against mankind. And he's backed it up with evidence of our depravity. Now, in verses 19 and 20, he pronounces the verdict from God against all who remain in their rebellious, sinful state. But in that verdict, there's also a glimmer of the justification that God provides for those who do repent and call upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Listen to the verdict. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here, Paul declares God's verdict upon fallen, unrepentant mankind. Know here refers to knowledge that is certain and complete. In other words, we know with absolute certainty that the whole world is accountable to God. He is the prosecutor, He is the judge. And he will carry out the sentence that he passes. 
There is no appeal. He will pour out His divine wrath upon every unrepentant soul who failed to submit to Him and to His law. Every mouth will be stopped, will be shut. None can speak back to Him. None can speak in their own defense. Because by the works of the law, even if they had done them, which none have, no human being will be justified in God's sight. We might sum it up this way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the penalty for sin is death. Eternal death. Eternal conscious punishment. The final verdict is in. Those who are unredeemed by Christ have no defense whatsoever. The defense must rest before it can even speak. Because the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise creator of the universe has already ruled. And nothing can change the outcome. So where is our glimmer of hope? It is in that phrase, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Paul leaves the door open there to another means of justification that is not found in our obedience to the law of God, which we are unable to obey. And he begins to speak of that means in the next two verses. Let's look ahead at Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Praise be to God. This is our glimmer of hope. Paul leaves the door open to another means of justification. It's not found in our perfect obedience to God's law. Instead, it's found in His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is God a God of wrath? Absolutely. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. Both are true. God loves those who love His Son. God gave His Son so that we could trust in Him, in His perfect righteousness for our redemption. Because our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And believe here includes repenting 
of our sins, admitting that we are a sinful person, repenting, turning away from those sins, and calling upon the name of the Lord, and trusting in Him for our salvation, and following Him as our Lord and Savior. This is the means of grace that God has provided for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen? More on this next Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to hear from you. Yes, Father God, we are blessed to be recipients of your word. Yes, Father God, you have revealed to us the sinfulness of mankind and the need of mankind for a Savior. Thank you, Father God, for opening my eyes to my need for a Savior and drawing me to your Son. Father God, we cannot trust in how we were raised or what family we were born into or how many times we've gone to church or even how many times we've read the Bible. We must surrender our lives to you in order to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And so, Father, I pray that for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, that they, Father God, would truly surrender to you even Today, as your word says, today is the day of salvation. And Father God, help us who have surrendered to Christ. Help us to be your instruments to share both the bad news and the good news. The bad news, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The good news, the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we be equipped and willing to share that truth with others. And may you continue to bless our church as we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand with us as we worship our God and King. <clears throat>